great to be back here to bring God's word before you guys this morning. Continue to be praying for Pastor West and his family as they're still on vacation, having a good time as this last week. Pray that they find rest and are come back rejuvenated. We are going to be, as we read in the book of Philippians, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And today's passage is really just a continuation of, of what we preached on about two months ago, the last time we were in the book of Philippians. We were in Philippians 2, chapter chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And today we're going to be in verses, verses 14 through 18. And really, it's Paul tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then he goes on today to kind of give us some examples on on how we ought to do that, how Christians are to conduct themselves, how we are, we can do this practically. The idea of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Really, if you want to just sum it up in so many words, Paul says, don't be complainers, right? Don't be complainers. We live in a society that is filled with people who are just discontent, people who are just not happy with their situation, and so they are angry. They complain. There's never enough for them. It's a part of our DNA as as humanity. It goes all the way back to Adam in the garden when he decided to tell God, it is the woman that you gave me that gave me the fruit and I ate it, ultimately blaming God for what's happening. Cain complained that his punishment for murdering his brother was too severe. So he grumbled and complained against God about being driven away. We see the Israelites who were miraculously delivered from slavery through the parting of the Red Sea. Egyptians on their their tail. They're at the Red Sea. They don't know what's going to happen. God parts the Red Seas. They are delivered from their oppressors. And then just three days later... They grumble and complain about having bitter water. After being delivered, now we don't like this water, God. And so they continue to grumble and complain. And that's really all they did there. Grumble and complain. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our DNA in humanity. It's part of our DNA in the church to just grumble and complain. Paul here says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. And so our main idea today is this. It's simple. Your Christian witness is dependent not merely on what you say, but on who you are. And it's not going to be up there because I just did not send it to them. So my apologies. But the main idea, your Christian witness is dependent not merely on what you say, but on who you are. Like I said, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in, in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering for of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
come before you, Lord, today, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather with like-minded believers, to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to sing songs of praise, sing songs of wonder to you, Father, acknowledging who you are, Father. We thank you for being able to pray together as a congregation, Father. We understand that there are so many Christians in this world who don't have that opportunity, Lord, and so we thank you, Lord. Lord, as we go about the rest of this time together, Lord, we pray that you continue to work in our hearts, Father. That you continue to show us, reveal to us errors in our lives where where we're doing the exact opposite of what you're calling here, Father. May we be open mind to receive whatever the Spirit wants us to receive, Father. Be with us today, Lord. Be with those brothers and sisters who aren't with us today. Keep them safe. Keep them in your will, Father. We ask that you bless this time together we have in your word. Maybe a time of growth. Maybe a time of reflection. Maybe a time of just coming and worshiping you, Father. Eliminate any distractions we may have. Help us to spend these next several moments focused on your word, Father. We pray all this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. And as people said, amen. So Paul tells us in verse 12 that, that we are to always be obeying. And he goes on and says that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he goes on here to tell us exactly how we can be doing this, how we are to always be obeying, exactly how we can be working our salvation with fear and trembling. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing or questioning. Point number one, Christians, we are called to live a life of constant gratitude in our deeds and in our thoughts. We are called to live a life of constant gratitude in our deeds and in our thoughts. Here, Paul, when he's talking about grumbling or questioning, he's thinking of the people of Israel, as I mentioned earlier, who three days after being delivered from their oppressors are are grumbling. Literally, that's what it says there, that they are grumbling to God because of the bitter water. Six weeks after they've been delivered, they continue to grumble because of the provisions they have. There's not enough. It's a little bit too difficult. And so they are grumbling and complaining to God. And Paul's saying in his mind, don't be like Israel. And this goes back to 1 Corinthians 10, 6, where Paul is warning against idolatry. And he says, avoid what the Israelites did. Be that they were an example for us. Now, the things that took place as example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. He says, do not be like the Israelites who are always grumbling and complaining. They are an example for us on how we are not to live. Because at the heart of it, Paul understands that, that this constant grumbling or complaining that goes on in our life, what it does, it's, it shows a lack of gratitude to our Lord and Savior. We, 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 we choose not to see the saving grace that he's given us, the fact that he's still working in us. Every time that we grumble and complain or question his, his ways, we are showing a lack of gratitude towards the work of God in our lives. This idea of grumbling, as, as John MacArthur notes out in the Greek, it is an onomatopoeic word that sounds like the guttural muttering sounds people often make when they are disgruntled. We, we, are, 
we are familiar with that. We sometimes make that noise. We, we hear it in, in our children. We hear it in our works. People who are just fed up and tired and nothing goes their way. And so they, they make these grumbling noises. And in the back of your mind, you already know. They really just want to complain. We've all been guilty of it. This idea of, of grumbling, it's, it's the emotional response that we have to things when things aren't going our way. It's this idea, it's, it's the rolling of the eyes, it's, it's the snarky breath under, the comment under our breath when things aren't going our way. It's the frustration. We just can't help but we let out a grumble. Paul's saying do all things without grumbling. Grumbling will often lead to resentment if it goes unchecked if we're not checking ourselves if we're not asking ourselves questions if we're not watching ourselves if we continue to let ourselves just have be grumbling we will lead to resentment you will find yourself complaining more being less and less happy and satisfied with life the more that you allow yourself to have this emotional response of grumbling to just the different things that are going on when things aren't going your way when things aren't going the way you thought they should when things when life is a little bit too uncomfortable and we continue to grumble and grumble and complain what happens is we end up becoming bitter start to say, God is not fair. Life is not fair. We have this attitude towards life that, that nothing is going the way we want. And so we are going to just complain. We are going to grumble. If grumble is the emotional response, then this idea of questioning or, or disputing, depending on your translation, it's the intellectual response that we have towards the discontent in our life. It's this, it's the inner discourse, it's arguing, it's, it's grumbling happens in the heart, but questioning and disputing that happens in our mind. This questioning that Paul is talking about, it's questioning the truth of the matter. We may know the truths of the scriptures, but because we have this disposition in life where everything that happens, we're going to grumble and complain and question about, we ultimately start to question the things we know to be true. We start to question the character of God. Is God really good? If he was, I wouldn't be so uncomfortable in my life right now. If God was really good, things wouldn't be going the way they are. There might be a little bit less persecution in my life if God was good. This question, this grumbling and questioning also leads to us questioning truths about the scripture. Is God really sovereign? If this is happening to me, is God really in control of all things? Is, is he truly powerful as the scripture says? That's what grumbling and arguing and questioning and complaining, that's what it leads to. It leads to us questioning the reality, the truths of who God is. And once we get there, it's not too long before we end up wanting what the world has to offer before what God has to offer. It happened with Israel. All the way back in Numbers 14. They weren't were happy with the response of the spies. So what did they say? Let's just go back to Egypt. This is going to be too difficult. This is going to be hard. We'd rather go back, be slaves, because this, this is impossible. Or, or, or when they, in, in 1 Samuel 8, 5, when they want a king like all the other nations. You're not good enough for us, God. We, we want a king. That's what happens when we have this disposition of grumbling or questioning in our lives. We'd rather 
have the things of the world and the things of God. And Paul, understanding this, says we have to do all things without grumbling or questioning. This person who has this disposition in life, who their outlook is always to just complain and not be satisfied, they become argumentative. They become disruptive to others around them. Sometimes they even become disruptive to the church and they start to argue with God and not be happy. And everyone knows that they're not happy. And so we no longer want to be around them. They are burdened to be around. And this is why Paul warns against the spirits. He understands what happens if, if we allow grumbling and questioning and this disposition in life where nothing is ever good the way we want it. He knows what that leads to. He knows the damage that it can cause in the church, in the body, into people. So he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He literally means everything, everything that we do in this life as Christians, the good, the bad, no matter what it is, everything that happens, we must do so. We must accept it. We must not grumble. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or questioning God. Paul might have had at at the front of his mind here, the beginning of chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, where he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do that without grumbling or questioning. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. He's saying do that without grumbling or questioning. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Do that without grumbling or questioning. Work out your salvation. Do the things in life that is going to be hard without grumbling or questioning. That is the outlook we are to have in life. I'm not saying that, that, that there's a difference here between grumbling, between questioning and, and, and arguing and disputing everything versus asking God a question. I'm not saying that we can't ask God a question. I'm not saying that we can't bring our your request to be made known to him as Paul tells us to do in Philippians 4, 6. Let your request be made known to God. It's not saying that we don't share sometimes. You know, this is a little difficult. Life was, if things were a little bit easier, that, that would be all right. There's, I'm not saying we can't do that. We can't bring our desires. We can't bring our needs and our wants to God. But there is a difference between asking a question and sinfully questioning God. There's a difference between letting your request be made known to God and being upset and questioning God's authority. That's what we're not to do. Sinfully questioned, as Lincoln Duncan notes, it's questioning which disrespects the authority that God has established over his people. And it does not trust in God's kind and loving and beneficent sovereign providence over his people. That's sinful question. That's what we're called not to do. We can bring our request to God. He asks us, tells us, ask and you shall receive. But the difference is how we ask. It's, it's in our hearts. If, if it's sinful questioning, we are questioning, we are disrespecting the authority 
of our Lord in our lives. And that is what we are to avoid. That is what Israel was doing all throughout their time in the wilderness. And Paul is saying, don't be like Israel. Always grumbling, always complaining, always questioning, never being satisfied. Paul goes on then to give us several reasons on on why we should not have this type of attitude. Point number two, we are to do everything without grumbling and complaining because we are to be a shining witness to others. We are not to do everything without grumbling and complaining because we are to be a shining witness to others. Verse 15, Paul says, do all things without grumbling and questioning. Verse 15, that you may be blameless. And innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Ultimately, what Paul's getting at is that our, our attitude, our disposition in life, if we're constantly grumbling, complaining, it will have effect on how others view us. Uh, it will have an effect on our witness, and it will have an effect on how others view God. He says, do all things without grumbling question that you may be blameless. What does it mean here to be blameless? It means to be without defect, to be irreprehensible, to be free from blame or, or reproach. Right? And Paul here is getting that both morally and spiritually. You are to be blameless. You are to make sure that no one can justly bring a charge against you. When people see you, do people know you as someone who's always constantly grumbling, never happy, always angry? Do they see you as someone who, who's not loving, someone who's filled with hate in their lives? Do they see you as a hypocrite? Or do they see something different? You have to be above, in essence, above reproach. We have to be above any justly charging. The reason I say justly is because we, have to, we, do, we will have those people in this world who just because you are a Christian, just because you claim that, they will automatically hate you. They will automatically find you to be hypocritical just by simply saying, yes, I am a Christian. Right? We are to expect that, Jesus said. You will be hated by all nations, Matthew 24, 9. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you at its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, John 15, 18 through 19. It's to be expected. People will hate us. But to be blameless is to be above any justly charged, any legitimate claim against your character. That's what it means to be blameless. So if someone does bring a charge, if someone does say, you know what? You're not a very kind person. You're not a very loving person. You know, you claim to be a Christian, but you sure hate life a lot. We don't just ignore that. We pray. We, we seek within ourselves. Maybe you have some people in your life who will honestly let you know. You'll be like, hey, you know what? Someone said this, this is who I was, that I'm always filled with hate. And they might tell you, you know what, lately, yeah, that might be the case. Or they might be like, no, there's no, there's, that's not true. And if, and if it is true, then we are to repent and turn from that and, and to ask God to help us in our lives. But the charges that people bring, we have to consider them because we are to be blameless. We don't just ignore them because we don't like it. 
we seek within ourselves. Ultimately, we need to try to be blameless with our words. We need to try to be blameless, above reproach with our actions and the way we live. That's what Paul is calling us here when he says to be blameless. He goes on and says, be innocent or, or be pure, depending on your translation, or, or harmless. And it's this idea of being innocent here is to be unmixed. As several commentators noted, this is primarily was used to describe pure wine that was unmixed with water or a pure metal that was not alloyed. Picture here when he says to be innocent, it's to be uncontaminated. Paul is calling to live a pure life where we are not mixing with, where we're not entertaining sin or the evil deeds of this world. Right? This is why Paul in Romans 16, 19 says to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. To be pure here. That's the call here to be innocent. Because we understand, as it says in Galatians 5, 17, that for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. They collide. They don't work together. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those, they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So remain blameless. Remain innocent. Don't mix. Don't allow yourself to be contaminated. Remain pure. This doesn't mean that we pull away from the world in our attempt to live like this, in our attempt to be blameless, in our attempt to be pure. We aren't to pull away from the world because later on in verse 15, Paul says, whom you shine as lights in the world. So we don't just become hermits. But we need to be wise and discerning as we navigate this world. We have to make wise decisions. We have to be discerning and say, maybe this isn't what I should be doing. Maybe I shouldn't go here. Maybe I shouldn't be listening to this. Maybe I shouldn't be watching this. That's the call here. It's to consider your life and that you're not mixing with the world. Which means we have to be careful of what we allow to influence us. It's one thing to be in this world, and we are the ones influencing this world. It's a whole nother thing to be in this world and allow the world to be influencing us. A lot of times we think we're influencing the world, but we're not. So we have to be mindful. We have to be looking internally here to remain blameless, to remain innocent. He goes on to say, and to be children of God without blemish. It's this idea that that without blemish means to be faultless, to be without any defect. All of this is really, these things really, you can cabulate this in just this idea of be above reproach. That no one can legitimately bring any type of criticism or blame to you. That there's nothing that an outsider or nothing that anyone can point into your life and be like, this is where you are falling short. This is where you aren't living the way you are claiming to be. We are to be blameless. We are to be innocent, to be pure. And we are to be without blemish. And we understand that, that in, left to our own, our own power, this is impossible to do under our own power. We can never truly be pure and above reproach in our own selves. This is why we, we need Christ in our lives. He's the one who's perfect and unblemished. He's the one who was the sacrificial lamb. He's the one who presents us as blameless, as pure before God. 
And he's the one who gives you the power to persevere. He's the one who can keep you from stumbling, Jude 24. We can't do this by ourselves. We need Christ in our lives. Jeffrey Wilson notes that this type of living, to, be with, to, be, to do all things without grumbling or questioning, to be blameless and innocent and, and, a, and without blemish, this not only requires a purity of life, but it also demands that it may be evident to all so that there is not a charge that can be made against the witnessing community. People need to know this is how we live our lives. We can't just do things in secret. People need to see the best of stuff. Living this type of life is not something we do on our own. It's not, we don't keep it a secret. It's not just for our family and for our friends. It's for the world to know. We are to be in this world. We are to shine as light in a crooked and twisted generation. We are living like this. We, we are to be blameless. We are to be innocent. We are to be without blemish. We're to shine as lights or stars. You can translate that there as well. In this crooked and twisted world that describes the time we live in today so perfectly as well. Ultimately, the way we, as the children of God, choose to live our lives will have a great impact on how we influence the world around us. Are we about it or are we going to be lazy? Are we going to put in the work to be blameless, to be innocent, to be without blemish? Or are we going to let the world influence us? It's not us, ultimately, when we're doing this, when we're living our lives free of grumbling and questioning, when we're, when we're seeking to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We aren't the ones shining bright, but it's the, it's the gospel, it's the message that we proclaim. That will be, that's what begins to shine bright. Paul, verse 16, says, holding fast to the word of life. This idea of holding fast, it's twofold. There's this idea there of literal clinging to the scriptures, of a literal clinging to the gospel, not letting go, having it depend everything in our lives. And there's also this idea of proclaiming the gospel, of, of holding forth, as the King James will put it. So we're called to be blameless, to be innocent, to be without blemish, and we're called to make the gospel known to this world. It's the, pro- the vocal proclamation of the gospel. That's one of these ideas behind holding fast to the word. This idea of if you take a, a torch and you hold it in front of you, you're presenting the light so you can see in front of you. That thing that we are to be holding forth and presenting is the word of life. The scriptures. It's the, it also refers to the gospel. Paul is saying we have to proclaim the gospel, that it's the gospel which brings eternal life. It's not our actions. It's not because we are blameless, we're seeking to be innocent, or we're seeking to be without blemish, that someone is going to come to know the Lord as their Savior. It's the public proclamation of the gospel. That is what saves, not our actions. 
And so as we live this life, what is shining forth is the gospel, not us. Paul goes on, says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Point number three, we are to do everything without grumbling and complaining for the honor of those who have labored over our souls. He says, do all of this. Grumble. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Be blameless. Be innocent. Be without blemish. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This isn't Paul being prideful here. He's not being boastful. Paul truly does find joy in seeing God working in others. Everything that Paul has been talking about so far in this book of Philippians and everything that he will continue to talk about throughout the rest of the book, it all has to deal with eternity. It all points back to that reality that our citizenship is not here, but is in heaven. Philippians 3.20. He says in in Philippians 1.6 that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Everything has to do with that reward that we will have on the day of Christ. And that's why Paul is saying, do all this so that I may be proud that I did not run in vain. We are to honor all of the people who have labored over our souls, who have cared for us, who have fed into us, who have poured into us. We're to honor their sacrifice by persevering until the end. All Paul wants here by saying this, he he wants to see them grow spiritually. He wants to see them become spiritually mature. And that's the truth for anyone who's ever labored over you, who's been there with you, who, it's, whether it's pastors or elders, whether it's a mentor, whether it's someone who's been discipling you, all they really want, they want to see God's work come to completion in your life. And Paul said, that's what gives me joy, seeing God work in the lives of people. That brings me joy. That brings me happiness. He's not being boastful or prideful here. He says, look, I'm willing to even give my life, even, verse 17, even if I had him poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. If I have to give my life to see you fulfill your calling, if I have to give my life to see you on that day of the Lord, I will do so right away. And I will be glad. I will rejoice in that. He even says you should rejoice and be glad in that fact. Be glad that I'm willing. Rejoice in the fact that I'm willing to, to do what it takes to give you, to make sure that you persevere. That's hard for us at times. It's hard for us to accept help. 
It's hard for us to, to learn to rejoice in the self-giving of others. Paul says, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me if my life was to end all for your sake. Perseverance will be difficult. It will be hard. But it's far greater than anything this world can give us. We must be willing to live this life in a way that is blameless, that is innocent, without blemish. We must do the things. We must make the sacrifice to live our life in a way that Paul is calling us here. Even if that means losing our lives, that's kind of the idea there at the end. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Are we willing to do that for ourselves? Are we willing to do that for others? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Always obey. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Be blameless. Be innocent. Be above reproach. Even if that means giving your own life. Even that means being a little bit uncomfortable. Even that means sacrificing some comforts in life. And do this so that we, as the children of God, can shine bright in this world. It's not going to be easy. As we end our time here, and I'd like to address those who are with us or who may be listening, who aren't believers, who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ. And you may be listening and thinking, yeah, I'm not doing that. That makes no sense to me. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. When I'm unhappy, when things aren't going my way, I am going to say something because that's how I'm going to get my way. I'm not going to just accept whatever happens. You may be thinking, I'm not willing to, to give my comforts or my life for others. That doesn't make sense to you. And the problem is, is you have yet to see the beauty of the gospel. You may be thinking, why would someone give their life for others? Why would someone be willing? Why do Christians take the calling so serious that they're giving comforts up? It's because we understand what we have been saved from. We understand the cost that was given on our behalf so that we can be redeemed. We understand that before we were saved, we were heading to hell. That we are guilty of our sin. That we deserve death. But because God is rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 4-5. Because of that truth, because we understand the weight of our sin, we can say this. We can be glad. We can rejoice. We can give up comforts in life. We can say we want others to be better off than ourselves. We can be willing to give things up because of what Christ has done. We understand the weight of his sacrifice. What we fail to realize, what, what, what non-believers fail to realize is that the weight of their sin, that, that the weight of their sin, that their life is deserving of hell. And that God did give us a way out. 
The gospel is simple. You deserve hell. You deserve to die. But because of what Christ has done, there is a way out. He sent his son to die on the cross on our behalf. We deserve hell. But God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to come and live in this world of the virgin birth, as we read earlier in our, our, the Heidelberg Catechism. He's taking the nature of man, still being fully God, lived this life that we live, did everything perfectly, never sinned, and then willingly went to the cross and died. Took on the punishment that is ours, that is yours. And now he rose from the dead three days later and is now sitting in heaven. And it's through that, it's through that redeeming work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection that those who put their faith and trust in him can have eternal peace, can live the rest of eternity with God. We understand the cost, which is why we're willing to live this life, which is why we're willing to put things aside. We have to be, you have to turn from your sins and put your trust in the works of Jesus. You are deserving of eternal punishment, but if you turn from your sins, you will have eternal glory. You'll be with God for the rest of eternity. If you haven't done that, if, if you're not sure what that looks like, if you have questions about what it means to live this Christian life, to, be, to put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can talk to anyone you saw today up here on the stage, to me. You can email Pastor West, myself, whoever it is, and you can ask, what does it mean? What does it look like to put your trust in the works of Christ? And we would love to have that conversation. We would love to go out, have lunch, breakfast, and explain to you what it means to do that. But if you don't understand this, the punishment of sin is eternal damnation. It's been the rest of eternity in hell. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, this isn't easy. Sanctification is not easy. To do what Paul says, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to always obey, to do things without grumbling or questioning, it's not easy. Sanctification in our life, it's going to be costly. At times, it will cost you your jobs. You will have to make a decision to honor Christ or honor this world. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you some family members. It may even cost you your life. But the reward that we will receive for enduring, the reward that we will receive for persevering is far greater than anything this world has to offer. It's far greater than anything this world can do to us, which is why Paul says, don't stop obeying. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be blameless, be pure, be above reproach. Because he knows that what's at stake here. He knows that if we're not living like this, we're not persevering to the end. This will be difficult, this life. Which is why he says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Earlier I talked about how one of those, one of the 
what that looks like. One way is to proclaim the gospel, but another way of holding fast to the word of life is literally to claim, to hold tight, have it in your hands and not let go, to allow the word of life to dwell in our hearts, to permeate our hearts. If we're going to persevere, if we're going to continue to be sanctified, we must hold fast to the word of life. And if we're doing that, if we're clinging to God, if we're clinging to the, to the Bible, if we're clinging, clinging to the gospel, then the fight that we have in this life, the struggles that become a little bit more manageable, a little bit more easier. It's not completely easy, but just a little bit. We have to cling to what God has given us, and that is his word. We must stand on it. We must rely on the scriptures more than we do on food or water. That's what it means, holding fast to the word of life. We have to cling to the word if we want to persevere, if we want to, if we want to endure to the end, if we want to make it through the hardships of life, we must cling to the word. We must hold fast. There's five ways I would like to just tell, give us examples on, on how to do this. And this isn't life-changing. You've all heard this before, but it's always good to be reminded of these things. We can cling, we can hold fast to the word of life first by hearing the word proclaimed, doing what we're doing today, not forsaking the gathering of saints, as it says in Hebrews 10.25. If you're here and you're listening to God's word proclaimed, that is one way that we can hold fast to it. Another way is reading the word, reading to understand it, reading to grasp. It's not just, let me get my chapter done today. But it's reading God's word slowly, intentionally, thinking about what we are reading and its significance. It's understanding it, it's knowing it. Some of us probably know the plots and the characters to some of our favorite books better than we know some of the truths of God's scripture. We must be reading the word to cling to it. Studying the word is another way that we can hold fast to the word of life. This, this goes deeper than simply just reading. You are examining the scriptures, Acts 17, 11. Maybe you want to study a specific book for, for the year, and so you're going to look at it time and time again. This is studying, is reading the Bible with taking notes, with a pen, highlighting. Maybe it's a question you have. Maybe it's a specific topic you want to learn more about. That's what studying the word looks like. It's going deeper into the word. Memorizing the scripture is another way for us to cling to it, to hold fast to it. When we're going through life and, and things are hard, to be able to just sit there and remember some of the truths of scriptures and speak those truths into our lives will help with our perseverance, will help with enduring. But in order to memorize the word, we have to be willing to, to put in the work. It's maybe choosing a certain passage and trying to put your mind to it to where you, you can remember without even having to turn. You can just say it. If we're going to cling to God's word, we must memorize it. And last, we must meditate on the word. This means this idea of meditate is to, to take smaller sections rather than bigger chunks. Instead of saying, I'm going to remember or I'm going to meditate on the whole book of Acts. It's taking a smaller ch- 
section and, and meditating, thinking about that throughout the day. Be constantly asking yourself, how can I be applying this passage to my day, to my everyday life? It's, you, maybe you have it written down and every time you open your wallet or, or purse or you open up your phone, this, this scripture, this, this section is there and now you're thinking about it. You're like, how can I be living this out today in my family life? How can I be living this passage out today in my work? Lord, help me. Be thinking about it throughout the day. Thomas Watson on meditation says, This is an holy exercise of the mind, whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. We must hear God's word. We must read God's word. We must study God's word. We must memorize God's words and we must meditate on God's word. If we're going to pour out, if we're going to live out our life with fear and trembling, if we're going to live out our salvation with fear and trembling, if we're going to constantly be obeying at all times, as Paul says, if we're going to do everything without fear and trembling, if we're going to hold fast to God's word, we must cling to it. If we're going to live this Christian life, we must cling to God's word. It must be the thing that gives us life. If we're not living that way, if we're not clinging to it, if we're not dependent on it, then it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to push through this life. We must cling. We must hold fast to the word of life if we are to live the way Paul is calling us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we know that that none of this is possible without you in our lives. We know that, that we couldn't even consider the things of the scriptures. We couldn't even open up our Bibles. We wouldn't even have that desire if it wasn't for you working in our lives, Father. One of the most encouraging things is to know that you are God. You are working in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure, Father. We're not left to our own We're not left to just figure this out however we can. We have a God who walks side by side with us, who sends a helper, who gives us all the tools we need so that we can persevere to the end. Father, there are areas in our lives where we have fallen short. There are errors in our lives where we are constantly grumbling and questioning your truths, Father. Help us to turn from that. Give us the strength. Give us the discernment to do what you're calling us to do here, Father. Send people in our lives to encourage us. Send people our way to help us with this, Father. May we be willing to put into work 
to be blameless, to be innocent, to be above reproach, Father. Give us boldness to proclaim the gospel to this world. May we shine bright in this dark and twisted generation, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.